This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. A huge week for news on the show, uh, a lot to get through, so much so that tomorrow we're going to be talking to Osman Samiuddin, the senior editor at ESPN Crick Info, about the story that he broke during the week about ICC funding and the allocations, the planned reallocations of funding so that the lion's share will go to the Board of Cricket Control for India. The big news for today is that Jofra Archer is out of the English International Summer of Cricket. Uh, that's the whole thing start to finish. That's come through with news about the England squad for their Ireland Test match, which gives a good pointer as to what they'll be doing during the Ashes. The Australian summer schedule has been released uh, for the Southern Summer coming up at the end of this year. There's some hot Peter Siddle news off the press for those who've been waiting for exactly that thing. Ireland's one-day internationals against Bangladesh with a couple of crazy finishes there and a lot coming through from domestic cricket all around the world. But uh, first things first, hello, Adam Collins. Hello. Yeah, it's uh, it's felt news heavy over the last month and uh, not least this week. Uh, our timing has been good for once. There's been quite a big breaking story that we're able to reflect on on the podcast today. Usually what happens is we, we hit stop on the podcast and 15 minutes later, something noteworthy comes up and we have to wait six or seven days to discuss it, but not today. Big weekend as well. I was playing cricket for the first time this summer for the Oval Dream Boys, which was fun. Uh, my Don Blackie sort of style campaign continues. I hadn't bowled in the nets at all, Jeff, but those pacey Underwood finger spinners are coming out pretty well. So looking forward to doing as much of that as possible through the summer. Mm-hmm. The fact that I was doing it off the back of a 4am finish following Eurovision was all the more impressive, I thought. <laughs> so uh, there was other final worders as part of that too. Uh, through the course of Saturday, um, I took Winnie to the Oval to watch Surrey Middlesex and run around on the ground because Surrey at the Oval do this lovely thing where... They let you go on the field of play at lunch and tea. So I thought that's a nice way for Winnie to burn off some energy and see a few mm-hmm. friendly faces from the Final Word community. So that was that was pretty cool. So, yeah, all told, a nourishing weekend and, and on we go towards the Ashes summer. One down point for me, though, is that I've told you in the past that I have this recurring cricketing dream that I where I wake up quite flat because I'm bowling fast in it. It's pre-shoulder injury. I can run in and, you know, fluently approach the crease and beat the bat and all these types of things. And it, it's quite a haunting dream in, in many ways. Well, that's moved on. I've stopped having that dream. Instead, okay. I'm having the dream where it's half an hour before the wedding starts, Rach and I getting married in June, <laughs> and nothing is done. I haven't had my hair cut, haven't got my shoes, haven't got my jacket, <laughs> haven't written my speech. Uh, it's a complete shambles and, and I can't communicate any of this to Rach because she's at moments from walking down the aisle uh, and I wake up in a, in a, in a real state of panic. Um, so, one, so one recurring dream for another. Your cricket dream is actually like things are going well though because normally people's cricket dream is the version of the wedding dream. They can't find their pads, they exactly. can't find their gloves, three wickets have just fallen, they're due out to bat, they're going to get timed out, whatever <laughs> it is. Like it's something going terribly. Your cricket dream, everything's going great. Pit your wedding dream, everything's going terribly. That, that's quite right. I think the problem with the cricket dream is I wake up and I'm always quite sad when I wake up at the mm. end of it because I'm like, oh, that's the thing I used to love doing, running in, charging yeah. in and so on. Um, whereas when I woke up sort of stiff as a board, you know, that classic waking up from a nightmare at about 6.15 this morning, thankfully Peggy woke mm. me up crying, wanting milk. Um, not that she wanted milk from me, but, you know, broadly speaking, she was keen for a feed. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 and I'm like, oh, thankfully that, that is over because that was um, 
that was that was that, but the point is that's not the first time I've had a version of that dream in the last few weeks. So mm. yes, that's getting closer and closer as well. Yeah, your cricket dreams, it's the breakup dream. It's the one, you know, there there's usually a few after a big breakup where you you have a dream at some point that everything's good. Like mm. you're hanging out, everything's happy, it feels nice, it's a nice sunny day, you know, maybe you're running through a, a meadow or something like that. And then you wake up and realize that that is not the case. So that's you that's that's the cricket dream that you're having, the longing for something that that is no longer there. But you're just going to have to move on to your new relationship with Offspin um, <laughs> and try not to get into any <laughs> verbal stouches with any prominent well, I, players. Well, I, 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 I I did get lap swept, so I had a catch dropped off me at mid-off. Uh, love you, John Surtees. Quite a straightforward chance. And later in the same over, the bloke who went on to make 80 and effectively win the game for the other mob played a reverse sweep off me and it bounced and nearly hit him in the head. And I go, I said, and I didn't swear on this occasion, mm. but I did say, if you're going to play shots like that, put a lid on, mate. Uh, so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm already in that kind of... I'm already in that kind of mood. I'm feisty. I'm playing it. Um, I'm playing um, at Tim Rice's house next week. Or behind it, there's a cricket ground there for the authors. So uh, on we go. The season continues okay. in these um, jazz hat games. But uh, on other matters, Jeff got some correspondence yesterday that, that related to our story time episode from Saturday. That I think we called it Anil Kumble sexy or uh, Alec Anil Kumble sex, sex symbol. That's right. This came in from Dan Crawford. Just had a discussion about sexy Anil Kumble whilst buying cement. He says, "The guy at the till, <laughs> this his name's his name's Jason. This is at the Acton." branch of Juicens, right? The guy at the Till's a cricket fan and asked me if I listened to any podcasts. Then he asked me if I agreed with Jeff and Vivek about Anil Kumble. As a fellow non-turning spinner, I have to. It was most unexpected, but an excellent start to the morning. So thank you, Dan. <laughs> and thank you, Jason. I hope you're both enjoying this episode as well. <laughs> I hope that Anil Kumble is um, enjoying some long-awaited appreciation for his smouldering on-screen <laughs> presence as well. Uh, all right, let's get into the news for the week and no bigger news than the release uh, informing us that Jofra Archer is out of the entire summer. The uh, worst case as far as his ongoing injury has been confirmed. He's re-aggravated the stress fracture that he's had in his elbow. It's a rare injury. Um, not many bowlers have it, but he, he has that hyperextension of his bowling arm, that incredible sort of whip action, and, and that's the strain that it's put on his body. That stress fracture's recurred. So they've there, there won't be any more worrying about whether they can get him fit for this match or, or that or whether it's the fourth test or whatever it is, it's just done for the season at this point. Yeah, it was a, a bad misread from me last week. I, I thought it might be a bit like Mark Wood's elbow last year where it was like one more bit of intervention, one more stretch of rest and he'd be good to go on the basis that he was playing in the IPL only, what, mm. three or four weeks ago? Now he's and bowling fast. And bowling fast. And his IPL arrangements only changed last week when he returned home from Mumbai Indians to, to prepare what we thought to do a bit more recuperation and prepare for the English summer. But yeah, the press choice that came out this morning confirms all those fears, as you say. And yeah, isn't it, isn't it desperately sad that what made him so effective, that arm action that you referred to there, that made him so hard to pick up, that made him, I mean, because of the way where he releases the ball further forward than the average bear made him feel that much quicker. And in addition to the fact that he's bowling, in excess of 90 mile an hour, he was a complete nightmare mm. at his best. And we saw that on his test to build Lords in, in 2019, that that might be the catalyst for what could be a career ending injury, right? Like it'd be disingenuous not to start believing that that might be the case. Like sure, he's only 28. He turned 28 a couple of months ago, but an injury like this that's recurring, he's going to require another summer out of the game. And coincidentally, it comes as the story 
arrived during the week about the Mumbai Indians looking to contract him around the 12-month cycle, something that we've been foreshadowing for, well, for months, nearly a year. Uh, and you've had a conversation with Osman about money in cricket. Well, this is the this is the, the thin edge of the wedge, I suppose, with respect to how players might be allocating their time. And Matt Hughes had this yarn after we recorded last week. So the model would be Mumbai Indians control Joffre Archer and they pay him a shed load of money for that. And he is released to England at their discretion. And that'll be more and more of a thing, according to this report, after 2025, the next IPL mega auction. They're looking at Alex Hales as well, according to this um, this idea that, that they'll try and have players more in the control of, of IPL franchises with the various comps they play in. And, and yeah, it's, it's cruel as well that Archer seems to be in this great position to negotiate any future he wants, but he may not be able to bowl, certainly not for a while. Yeah, well, it, it makes you wonder how closely the IPL franchise will be looking at that again as well, you know, what the actual prognosis is, whether this is something that they are confident that another period of rest and recovery can um, can have him operational on the other side of it. But given that, you know, his, his emergence onto the world stage was 2019 via the, that World Cup and that Ashes series, the fact that he won't be there this time around, you know, for the the return series is is desperately sad in an on-field way. Um, England have a, a bunch of worries at the moment. So James Anderson picking up a groin strain playing county cricket. They've named him in the Ireland squad. You know, that test match isn't for another couple of weeks, so they must be confident that it's only minor, but they have brought Chris Wokes back into that squad who you'd think is probably the, the Anderson replacement if he's not fit. Yeah, and on the other side of it, Ollie Robinson's in the squad too, having rested last week. So you could easily have made a case for Anderson to rest out of that round and he wouldn't have this groin complaint. Although, as you like to point out, Jeff, these things aren't these things aren't linear. Uh, it could have been that he might have picked up a groin strain bowling in the nets, who knows. But mm. Robinson was rested after bowling 40-plus overs for Sussex and taking 14 wickets the previous week. And a lot of fans were like, this is a disgrace. Why is he not playing? You know, why are players being rested on ECB contracts? Well, because of what happened to James Anderson, right? Like They, they carefully mm. manage these um, these fast bowlers especially. And Bryden Cast from uh, Durham is another one. Now with a trunk strain. Now, Cast is one of the fastest bowlers in the country. Mm. He's played one day international cricket. I'm not sure what a trunk strain is exactly. Normally they call it a side strain, don't they? But Well, it's um, when it's, it's when a, an elephant is bowling um, and <laughs> it, it goes a bit too hard yeah. using that. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's an amazing feat to see an elephant <laughs> send down the cricket ball. But um, you can put too much into the action, that's all. Well, he's got the high arm action like I'd imagine an elephant would as well if letting the ball go with a trunk. That's part of Cass's mm. uh, comparative advantage. But, yeah, then like Mark Wood, Last right? Peanuts. So, yes. yeah, for peanuts. <laughs> Mark Wood's in the, in the squad for the Ireland test as well. Not played a red ball game for a long time. Was in the IPL till a month ago. Came home to rest and to be there for the birth of a child. That all makes a lot of sense. But he's not been playing for Durham, yet he will play against Ireland. And what if he has to bowl a shitload of overs off no, mm. off no loading in a game? We know there's a risk factor there. Anderson... Hopefully, right to go. Wokes his first test in England since August 2020. I saw in the release that feels like a long, long time ago. That didn't feel right either when I read that. I'm sure he played a test match against India in mm-hmm. 2021. Anyway, and then Stuart Broad, who missed last week again, being rested. And of course, they have um, the the replacements if required in Matty Potts. We'll talk about him later today. He played a starring hand in a thrilling win for Durham on the weekend against Yorkshire. But the real drama well, under the surface here is Ben Stokes, isn't it? I mean, Stokes hasn't played for like two months or something like that in the IPL. Can't be that long, but you know what I'm trying to say. Since the first couple of games, because CSK can't really use him properly. He can't bowl. His knee's fucked. So 
Mm. Stokes can't balance the attack the way that he has in Test Series before, at least not at the moment. He's not playing any cricket. Joe Root's only played one game in the IPL. He's missed this block of county cricket as well, which would have been a perfect lead-up to the Red Ball summer. And I'm not criticising Joe Root for going into the IPL auction, by the way, and, and taking that opportunity. He wants to play T20 cricket for England again. What better way of doing that than, than starring in the IPL? The problem is Rajasthan just haven't picked him. He played one game the other mm. day against RCB when they got bowled out for 59 and made 10. So there's no Red Ball cricket for Root, no Red Ball cricket for Stokes, no Red Ball cricket for Wood who's got a loads issue as well. And then last night, yep. Jeff, the, the breaking story that they've dropped, the bloke who is in form in red ball cricket, in Ben Folkes. Uh, he's making way for Johnny Bairstow. And I'm interested in your perspective on this, given that it felt like England finally cracked the code with Johnny Bairstow last year. Three of the best test matches you'll ever see back-to-back, batting at five mm-hmm. without the responsibility of wicket-keeping. And now, presumably, he'll be down at, well, probably seven, I'd say, and parting ways with folks who, who did play a role in a couple of test wins last year. Yeah, well, because their only other option to try to get Besto back into the side was getting rid of Zach Crawley and shifting it around, whether they had Stokes opening or whether they had Besto open, you know, to, to do something around making space with an opener because they've got that middle-order logjam now that Harry Brooks made himself undroppable. So it's a, a curious kind of situation. I mean, I think we all felt like folks was on the edge of the plank and there was a, a good chance that they would do this. Um, and, and I suppose over the course of a summer, they'll have time to change their minds and, and backtrack on that if they need to. But yeah, the fact that Bairstow played some of the best innings you'll ever see is is compelling, but the fact that he did it a year ago, more or less, and hasn't been able to play much in the interim, you don't know whether he's going to be able to have anything like the same kind of impact when he comes back. And and, and then as far as the, the bowling side of things goes, I mean, like the injuries aren't funny, but there's something almost amusing about England coming into these series with the big talk about, oh, we're going to have a big fast bowling battery, it's going to be Archer, it's Stone, Wood. But it's exactly the same thing that we heard before the previous Ashes when they came to Australia. It's mm. pretty much the same thing we heard in 2019. And then it ends up being the same. It ends up being Broad, Anderson, Wokes, Leach, pretty much. You, you, you've ended up with the same bowling attack in every Ashes in living memory because those fast bowlers are never actually fit. The, the genuinely express bowlers are never fit to bowl. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I neglected to mention Ollie Stone. He did his hammy last week and he's out at least until the mid part of the Ashes. So if they were thinking about using Stone, I, I thought that was a good shout, by the way, in the absence of Archer. You know, Stone genuinely moves the ball both ways in the air and he's bowls it on his best days, bowls well into the 90s. So he'll be missing as well. You're right. It does leave them bereft of some options. And I thought Cass, because he's tall, he's quick, he's played for England, he might be the smoky, but instead it'll probably be Matty Potts his Durham mm-hmm. teammate who gets the chance when they are looking to these rotations and yeah Archer's such a, a big out yeah with the with the best I think uh, I just think that like there were there were ways of making this work I, I take your point about him playing those extraordinary innings nearly 12 months ago but a guy who who seemingly had found it like you know not every cricketer has a linear career that you know starts off slow and gets better and builds to a, a peak and they have this period of time when they're at the peak of their powers and so on. He hasn't been like that, right? He's had an unusual career. He's dominated for a year in 2016, had a stretch of time for two years where he was the least productive batter in the world in terms of top seven players. And then he bounced back with some of the best innings you'll ever see in test cricket. And we talked at length about that to Lawrence Booth a couple of weeks ago. So I don't think it was a case of, is it best though? Is it 
Now, Ben Fogg, so I, th- I thought it was more a case of can they, they, can they find a creative solution? And Crawley made a half century on the weekend, sure, but it felt like that was the spot, right? You know, do you bite the bullet? Does Stokes bite the bullet and say, there's a job that needs to be done? I'm the captain. I'll take responsibility for it. I'll go and face the new ball. That, that actually felt to me like a, a reasonable conclusion. Yeah. Or Joe Root. I mean, I know that Joe Root's been one of the informed players in the world over the last three years batting at four and doing a great job in home conditions. But Joe Root is a a generational talent. And yes, maybe you do sacrifice the risk of him nicking off against the new ball, against Pat Cummins a couple of times through the series, but you'd back him to be equal to that challenge opening in a role that he's performed exceptionally well at at the start of his career. I know it's a decade ago, but it's not without context, you know what I mean? Well, Joe Root started his career opening for England um, and it didn't go terribly at times. You know, <laughs> remember him making a couple of massive scores at the top of the order. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily on a hiding to nothing. And if you can just jam your team full of as much talent as possible, then maybe it's going to come off at some point. You would have thought that would be in the sort of Ben Stokes take any risk kind of category. But uh, I suppose they're, they're going that way, backing Crawley to do something once during the series that might win them a test match. Mm. The Australian summer schedule has come out. This is a, an interesting one because they've backloaded the test matches in a way that, that kind of works, I think, in, in terms of having test matches through the school holidays, through the January part of the summer. So the first test won't be until the 14th of December. They'll have three tests against Pakistan with Melbourne second, Sydney third, and then they'll have that fixture that nobody was too keen to get, um, Adelaide getting West Indies two years running. They'll have West Indies for a day game in the middle of January and then there'll be a day-night test at Brisbane later in January. Um, so there's this interesting sort of quirk where they've got the Australian women's team playing overlapping with the rugby league season at the start of October and then no international cricket in Australia for two months from the middle of October to the middle of December, largely because the 50-over World Cup for the men is on through to the middle of November. But it still means there's, what, three weeks? No, nearly a month between that World Cup ending and the first Test match being played for the men in the middle of December. Feels to me like they've made the best of a bad situation here. Uh, You're right about the women's white ball games against the Windies clashing with not only the back of the rugby league season but the the start of the men's World Cup. But the truth is the the Windies women are, are a farcical team at the moment. Australia will win all six of those games with their third 11, with their fourth 11. So... That may not be the worst thing because they won't be competitive games of cricket. But focusing on, on the men, it, it's very rare that a journo gets every detail of a story right two months ago. Breddy did with this. He had every single piece of the puzzle on scheduling here, including Adelaide getting uh, the Windies for the second year in a row, which they're not best pleased about. But Adelaide also having a day test match for the first time since 2018. And his understanding in that reporting back in when we were in India is that Adelaide aren't going to be the default option for the day-night test match anymore because they don't want to be. They don't want to just be set and forget pink ball test match. That means it goes over to Brisbane. Jeff, I remember the first time we were at a Brisbane day-night test match, the Pakistan match in 2016. It was just watching blokes beneath us doing shoeys all night long. I, I don't think the crowd will be um, as big or as enthusiastic then, although it is across a, mm. a public holiday. And much of the attention uh, when the release went out yesterday was on the fact that they're playing on the 26th of January. That'll be day two of the second test match against the Windies, the day-nighter at, at Brisbane. The, I think the, the the backgrounding was that they didn't want to make it day one and emphasise 26th January too much, if you like, because day mm-hmm. one has that extra the extra weighting, I guess. Um, it feels to me like that's about as good as you can do. You can't deny CA 
hosting test cricket across a public holiday. It's not their fault that the public holiday continues to be the 26th of January. They've advocated for it to be changed. Usman Khawaja was quite balanced on this yesterday. Ash Gardner made a really good point as well. They might struggle to find an elder to do the welcome to country, which is quite reasonable. But yeah, again, this is not perfect, but it's but it's in the circumstances about as good as they can do. Yeah, well, I suppose having it start on the 25th means that that might be that might allow them to get around that particular problem. But um, yeah, I thought Kawaja's comments were spot on. He said the Australian team should be playing on Australia Day. It's just that Australia Day shouldn't be the 26th of January. Yeah. And we, it, it's a very simple fix to move that to a date that is an inclusive date rather than a date that's a, a date of mourning for some Australians um, and, and and has all of that historical baggage associated with it and, and that pain and distress associated with it and that if it was a day where everybody could celebrate what they think is great about the country that they live in together then it would be a natural day for a national team to play it and it could be a celebration so the option is there it, it just needs somebody higher up the chain to uh, to actually make that decision and, and put that to the public yeah, and we recorded an episode about this a couple of years ago with Chelsea Watego who came on to the final word and, and gave us a, a much better more comprehensive understanding of the the complexities around the 26th of January if you want to go back into the feed from yeah, it would have been January 2021 the good news is that later in the summer the women are playing a test against South Africa, which is a great thing. At the WACA in mid-February, the WACA is a ground that hasn't hosted a women's test for a while, but we use that 2014 as a reference point, don't we? Just before the professional era, when England came out and played a a brilliant test against Australia on on a hard, bouncy wicket, and it worked. So, you know, fingers firmly crossed that the conditions enable a competitive test match there, notwithstanding the the challenges that the Proteas have at the selection table at the moment. I just hope that their fast bowling reserves are deep enough to put on a good show there against Australia in, in what hopefully will now become an annual test match. And you wonder about timing with this. You know, if, if Australia had been taking on South Africa in a test match a year ago, they would probably have been a, a much more competitive outfit, um, particularly with the bowling depth and they might have been able to use a bouncy pitch on the whacker. A bit disappointing as well that they've stuck with a four-day test for this. So so we've got the five-day women's test in the ashes and then there's this, you know, that lack of consistency between the formats. So, oh, we'll play five days against England, but we won't <laughs> play five days against anyone else. I mean, partly it's to do with all, the, all of the... the well, so many of the four-day women's test draws have been badly affected by rain and that's unlikely to happen in Perth. Mm. You know, that's that's one of the places where you can be pretty confident you're not going to lose any significant time even if there is a, a shower there. But just in terms of optics and in terms of how it's presented, not having a consistent approach to that format, still there, there's still that 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 sort of feeling of it being that bit amateurish, you know, not actually being consistently pulled together in in the way it's presented. The good news is they'll have a, a window there where there's a lot of women's cricket being played in a multi-format series without much competition. So the Aussie men by that point will have gone across the ditch to play their white ball series in. This isn't announced, but my understanding is that their white ball series will be towards the end of February before the, the two test matches. So in a way, the best cricket of the summer from the men will probably be, or the most competitive cricket will probably be New Zealand um, in March, mm. which... Um, or, or, or it might not be, but you know, you'd, you'd imagine that that'll be the most testing cricket they play. And I say that because I always buy into the Pakistan hype when they come to Australia. But the reality is mm-hmm. they've won four test matches in Australia ever uh, and they have a mental hurdle. In the same way that New Zealand have a mental hurdle with Australia in Australia, um, it, it applies to Pakistan. So I hope 
um, you know, go full Fox Mulder. I want to believe Pakistan will come out mm-hmm. here and they'll prepare well and they'll hit the ground running at Perth Stadium, then come to Melbourne and Sydney and we'll have three, you know, live test matches through that stretch of time. But I, I, I don't anticipate that we will. And the Windies, well, you know, I, I offhandedly said before that Australia's third team could beat the women. I, I suspect the same applies to... Test cricket with the men too, that Australia could roll out a, a, an A team or a B team and it would still be sufficient to take care of the Windies at the moment on the basis of what we saw in Australia last year. Well, it's always an on-paper assessment and we did this last season. We looked at the West Indies fast bowling and, I mean, it looked great. You know, there were there are so many promising options and then you've got Jaden Seals bowling with a migraine and, and looking completely underdone. You've got Kemar Roach doing his best, but uh, you know, not actually being able to hold things together. You've got Elzari Joseph bowling a couple of fast spells, but otherwise being all over the place. And and the same sort of thing tends to happen with Pakistan. We, you know, they had a a great fast bowling attack on paper last time they came out, and and they got absolutely pilfered. You know, David Warner makes a triple hundred, and yeah, uh, Mohammad Abbas looks completely toothless after destroying Australia in Abu Dhabi. He couldn't do anything. In Adelaide, you know, it's it's hard to know exactly why it's so different in those different conditions, but history says that it is and it has been. It feels to me like a great summer for farewell laps. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a combination of Kawaja, Stark, Warner, if he gets that far, although it's unlikely, I think, on the basis of what he said late last year. Maybe even an outside chance, Nathan Lyon, although I think Lyon's keen to keep playing as long as he can, but, um, you know, he, he'll... he'll um, He'll be up to 500 test wickets by then. It might be that he's made his mind up that there is some end point for him. Um, they could all use that Pakistan series to finish up and and clear the path for uh, the Windies two test matches in, in a similar way to how Australia used them in the two tests in February against uh, Sri Lanka in, in 2019 as a bit of a transition. So, yeah, all told, not a particularly appetising summer, but that's the way it goes sometimes. All right, Adam, let's play a little game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's the game that we play with the people on the internet who fund this program by sending in contributions of currency that are not normal numbers, they're cricket numbers, and we have to figure out what the number means. Now, a slight change of tack on Nerd Pledge today because I'm going to look at a revisit, Adam, because I wanted to come back to a number that you and I spent a lot of time talking about before we recorded story time. Mm. Um, We went through a lot of options and I I reckon quite a few people who listen to the show would want to know the solution to this number because we didn't have it. We looked at everything that it couldn't be, but I now know what it is. This was from Matt May. The number was $8.62 and what it meant, according to his clue, was that $862 was the sum if you added up the test cap numbers for all of the players who had achieved a rare feat at Adelaide Oval, a place where this feat has been achieved more than anywhere else. And we went through every rare feat that we could think of, Adam. We mm. went, we brainstormed, we spitballed, we had the cork board up with the red strings and all the rest <laughs> of it. Um, we looked at every possible variation and we could not find what it might be. And do you want to know the reason why we couldn't find that? It's because, yes, it was adding up test cap numbers. And yes, we were right that it was probably three players. They all had test cap numbers, but the feat was not achieved in test match cricket. Uh, Aha. 
Okay. So three players, right. Three players did this thing on four different occasions, hence Adelaide being the ground where it's happened the most times. It's happened three times at the Wacker, once at Monica Oval, a couple of times in Sydney. Not at the SCG though. Hmm, what's going on there? Hmm. So this list, Adam, includes somebody who was test cap number six for their country. So one of the numbers is a six. It also includes Kellum Ferguson, who was test cap 445, and Graham Manu, who was test cap 411. Add 411 to 445, you get 856. Add six, you get 862. Who was test cap number six for their country who could have played at Adelaide Oval? Well, it's going to have to be... I, I think the commonality between Manu and Ferguson is they, they played one test match each, right? So is, is that they where did. we're going to... Okay, so is, is this what I'm... Are we on to the thread here? So test match... No. So cap six will be someone who... Only played Cap once? Cap 6 played a lot of test matches. Oh, Cap okay. 6 played close, closer to 100 test oh, matches. Oh, okay. Reckon, but this oh, was right. Cap 6 for Zimbabwe was Andy Flower. And you might remember, Adam, that Andy Flower played a season, two seasons, for South Australia in <laughs> domestic cricket. So who else did this thing around Australia? Steve Waugh, Shane Lee, Brad Haddon, Matthew Nicholson, Mike Hussey, Adam Voges. Ah. It happened once at North Sydney Oval. Hit, once the, at the, um, hit the sign. They hit the sign. Hit the sign, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they hit the ING slash Mercantile <laughs> sign was, in the one-day domestic competition to win 50 grand or more. I was only a couple of weeks ago in uh, Hong Kong with Jeff Lawson. You know, as you do when you're working with somebody, you spend a lot of time not on air, you know, fucking around watching shit on YouTube when you're not commentating. You know, it's quite common, you know, sitting in the green room as mm-hmm. it were. And I don't know how this got tweeted into my feed, but when Steve Wall hit the sign at Perth in, I guess it would have been about 1996 or something like that. Jeff Lawson was the coach of the New South Wales side at the time. And th- there's this news package that, that showed the, the footage in, in question where Henry tries to pour a beer over Steve Waugh's head, but the, 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 the cap's still on and he looks ridiculous. And, it's all, and Jeff Lawson's got the big Coke bottle glasses on and, and all the rest of it. So it's only a few weeks since this was on. Um, this was front and centre for me, so I'm so glad that Matt May's come back to it. So it, it's a, it was a um, Glenn Finkelder, a listener of ours, who finally tracked this down and, and was able to, to solve this in the end. But it's interesting that all four of the players to do it at Adelaide were playing for South Australia, so they're all the home players who did it. There's that interesting quirk that two of them are one test cap players, so mm. they... they sneak onto that list to be able to have the number calculated by adding their test cap numbers together. But given it was in a different format, there was no way I was, I was going to work this out without being pointed in that direction. But, yeah, four times at Adelaide that somebody hit the sign. And, um, you know, I mean, apparently it was quite a complicated thing because when you hit the sign, it's not like you get the 50 grand and ride off into the sunset. Then because it's cricket, you have to share it with everybody else and then people get annoyed about what share they're getting um, and then there's controversy about who gets included <laughs> that do you divide it between the players or does the coaching staff get involved or do you send some of it to charity or whatever it was and so apparently the New South Wales model was that the player who hit it you, you divide it into 12 shares and the player who hits it gets two shares and everybody else in the team gets one but then when Mike Hussey did that his teammates were annoyed about it because it had jackpotted up to like 200 grand at that point so you know he took home a sizable chunk of it and then later said that he wished that he'd never hit the sign because it made everyone mad at him um, really and, and he you know yeah, and so and he's you know he's a nice fella. He didn't want everyone to be angry at him because he followed the New South Wales model. This is the um, Richard Hadley with the car, isn't it? Exactly um, playing yep. out again. Two things out of this. One is that bring back the sign. You know the big bash 
would be the ideal place for it, having the signs around the ground. That would add an extra element, I'm sure. And they would hit them all the time, right? That's the other thing with the, mm-hmm. with the way T20 is set up. Or maybe it should be brought back for the, the barbecue cup, whatever it's called now. That, that might be another option. And secondly, mm-hmm. I remember when the, when the sign first started in Australia in the mid-90s. I reckon it was about 94, 95, the year that Victoria wore the shorts. It was when the Mercantile Mutual signs were first erected. And Tony Gregg was telling a story on commentary around in it must have been Sunday league cricket uh, when they were on television there was a they used to set up a series of eggs on a shelf and if you hit the eggs you won a prize and no one of course ever hit the eggs right who would hit a tray of eggs but I might be remembering that incorrectly because that's nearly 30 years ago if you know what I'm talking about rather if you know what I'm remembering from Tony Gregg um, please let us know and we'll include that in the in the Matt May confirmation when we come back to this on story time next week or the week after what does Johnny Bairstow get for putting the ball through the glass door of the fridge? Remember yes. that drinks fridge That's that was right. down by the boundary line? <laughs> it wasn't a very big target. Straight through the middle, decent shot. So that is uh, is Matt May's Nerd Pledge. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, go to patreon.com slash the final word. And in doing so, you can help support the show and uh, get involved in the ridiculous games that we play. Storytime on the weekend has a lot more Nerd Pledge, a lot more stories and numbers. Right, let's go to a break, but there's a lot more to get through straight after that. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Jeff Fleming and Adam Collins. A lot more cricket to come through, but before we get to that, there's only a couple of weeks until the Edinburgh Marathon. All of the half marathons and full marathons that Final Word listeners will be running along with Adam to try to raise some funds for the Lord's Taverners who do great work via the medium of cricket to help out kids across the UK and elsewhere around the world. Adam, not long to go. Yeah, a few of us are battling through injury. I mentioned that I was bowling on the weekend and, and kind of got through the six overs with my knee not causing me too much grief, which was encouraging. And I went on a couple of runs last week. So I've made the decision that even if I get in trouble in the run, I'm going to I'm gonna finish the course. I'm not going to pull out. So I feel satisfied. What's that- the rule about doing it on a segue? <laughs> yes. Well, ask Ian Healy. <laughs> yeah, Bro Heels is a segue at some point. No, yeah, I, I think that walking it is not advised because, of course, it would ruin everyone's day, but I'll, I'll hobble around and go a bit quicker than I walk if it comes to that. Yeah, we're really looking forward to being in Edinburgh, but we do have some work ahead of us. We've got about 3,000 quid to go to reach our target of £5,000. I, I acknowledge that we haven't done enough to promote this on social media. We'll be doing a lot more of this in the coming fortnight. Hayley Fuller has become the poster runner for the Lord's Tabs for what happened at London a few weeks ago. She's all over their social platforms at the moment, Hayley Fuller being one of our listeners and patrons, and and, um, we'll promote her video as well. So take a look there. And again, it it all kind of, you've got to remember with all of this, it's all about the Lord's Tabs. It's not so much about us running, it's about where the money's going towards. And we've told that story, if you've listened to the podcast for a long time, you know that story, but us trying to make a tangible contribution to the work they do uh, for young people with disability or, or born into disadvantage and making cricket possible for them. This is genuinely good work. They've been at it for more than seven decades. So if you're on the fence, please hit that link in the show notes and send um, whatever you can our way. It's not about us. It's about, it's about this great charity that we're very proud to be in association with. 
ICC playing conditions update. This is coming <laughs> into effect from the 1st of June, so before the Ireland Test and before the World Test Championship final. A couple of interesting bits here. Helmets compulsory for anyone facing fast bowling. You can still wear the lid against spinners. Wicket keepers have to wear the helmet if they're keeping up to the stumps, no matter what the bowling mm. is. And anybody fielding close to the bat in front of square has to wear a helmet. The soft signal is gone. The, the uh, on-field umpire giving a determination on whether they think a catch has carried. Low catches these days will just be referred upstairs, which is what they used to do until it caused so many problems because third umpires couldn't make definitive rulings about the catches being sent upstairs. So I guarantee you absolutely one-to-one on that it will be about a month before the next controversy with a low catch happens and everyone's mad saying, why can't the on-field umpires make a decision? They've got the best view. I'm glad that's your view as well, Jeff. I was worried we were going to have a disagreement about this. Let's just go back to the start, shall we? Are you also sad that keepers can't do their job with a cap on up to the stumps of the spinners anymore? Is that just me? I feel uh, a pang of nostalgia. You know, I think about watching Shane Warne bowl and Ian Healy keep, and I know the game's changed. I know helmets are important for keepers, but um, you occasionally still see a wicketkeeper up to the stumps without a lid on. I know Alex Carey mm. copped a couple in the grill in India, and yeah. you wouldn't want to do it there without a about the second on. over of the test uh, match, wasn't it? But, but yeah, there, there, is, there is part of me that, that, um, that wishes that that wasn't the case, but I suppose we have to make that concession. The truth is, in England, you can't wear a hat at all when you're batting in the county championship and in domestic cricket over here. They, they mandated helmets a fair while ago here, whereas in the mm-hmm. IPL, you often see Maxie walking out with the bare head, no cap on even, which um, aesthetically is quite pleasing. Donny, that was a it was a big part of Donny's thing yeah, for night yeah. games was no headgear at all, just just go out there and stare them in the eye with, yeah. with nothing in between you and them. I, I like wearing a, a a wide brimmed hat. It's always I always feel like it's giving me a slight edge over the bowler that's coming at me because something about tall blokes walking in with a wide brimmed hat makes you think they can really twat it. And I suppose yeah. on my day I can anyway. And then yeah, the 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 um, the problem will, will never be overcome with the technology that we're relying on. And that's I'm not criticising anyone here, by the way. It's just it's an imperfect process for the low catches, especially in the outfield when the camera angles you're relying on. I mean, slips catches, I think you can improve the camera angles. We've talked about this in January this year when there was some controversial decisions with Big Dick upstairs with catches close to the ground. I reckon there probably is an argument for the ICC having cameras set so low that at least you're a chance with the cordon or a better chance mm-hmm. than you are at the moment from those that are at a higher angle and it's much harder to tell whether the fingers are underneath. There's no way they're going to be able to do anything like that down at deep backward square. It's just not practical. So you are spot on. We're going to have a lot of people celebrating the death of the soft signal and then we're going to have a correction in about 12 months' time when they bring back mm-hmm. the soft signal. This is Saraf Ganguly's um, <laughs> cricket committee at the ICC, by the way. So this got all these changes got endorsed by the by the, the board after it went through the cricket committee. So just to be clear, these are ICC playing conditions, not the MCC laws of the game. So this won't affect mm-hmm. anything that, that, that happens in the yeah. park on a Saturday afternoon. It's, it's all to do with stuff that comes under the ICC banner, so test cricket, international cricket, and usually domestic comps just copy and paste the ICC conditions. Right. And the, the other quirky one is this. Any runs scored off a free hit when the ball hits the stumps will count as runs scored to be consistent with all other (laughs) runs scored from a free hit. Now, okay, if you chop the ball off your bat onto the stumps and it runs away and you get a run and it's a free hit, 
fine, no problem with that. But this means that if you miss an in-swinging Yorker that takes out middle stump and cannons away down to fine leg, the batter gets credited with having scored four runs despite not having hit the ball. There's A team can score runs without the bat hitting the ball. That's always been the case with extras. There's never been a case where as somebody holding the bat you don't need to make contact with the ball or with your gloves or with the wristband of the glove or whatever it is you just get given the runs for having missed it completely this is just ridiculous even the the quote to be consistent with all other runs scored from a free hit what so we don't count leg buyers as leg buyers off free hits of course we do mm-hmm. so is it too much to say that this is doubling down on what happened at the MCG with India and Pakistan last year, that there was such controversy around that dismissal that wasn't off the free hit that was bowled with Coley facing, I'm pretty sure? You were commentating that I wasn't. I reckon yeah, Coley was facing. Yep. If he wasn't, it was still in the last over and, and the ball ran away off the free hit. doesn't matter whether Coley was facing or not. But at the time, we argued that, well, yes, it's a free hit, but when the ball hits the stumps, surely it should be a dead ball. The ball should be dead upon mm. hitting the stumps. And I appreciate there's a different perspective there that if the bowler is overstepped, and normally I'm a bit of a front foot obsessive and you might yep. imagine that I, I'd arrive at this view, but I think that if on the free hit you've bowled somebody, that should be the ball dead. That's the other way of interpreting this. But making it runs off the bat just defies logic. Yeah, okay, make it leg buys if you must. Keep it as buys. I mean, what are we? At, what mm. problem are we solving here? Yeah, wicket keepers being annoyed at having buys credited against them. Wicket yeah. keepers get a raw deal with buys all the time. You of can, course, you can like Anrik Norkia the ball at the Gabba and and pound it three meters over the keeper's head, and they call it buys rather than wides because it's a test match. Well, too bad. Like that's just too bad. Wicket keepers have to suck that up. Yeah, agreed. So if you're going to stay with position A, that well, it's going to stay as runs, and we're not going to make it a dead ball. It's got to be buys or leg buys. Who on earth thought? that are the the neat solution here for the problem that doesn't exist, unless you are of the view that they should make it a dead ball, is to make it runs off the bat. And by the way, Ben Gardner from Wisdom, who was following the story very closely yesterday, has seen that the reference to this, this entire reference has now been deleted off the ICC website. So it went out via press release. Mm. It got clarified, the press release, on the website with a bit more detail. Now it's all gone entirely. So maybe, uh, maybe the backlash or the curious views Mm. that were expressed online after this went out yesterday have been enough for the ICC board to go, actually, this is a unnecessary and silly thing. Let's just remove all evidence of it. This is genuinely nonsensical. Well, yeah, I mean, look, you should be able to score from it. Like if you hit the ball to someone who catches it off a free hit, then you can still run and score because you're not out because it's been caught. So, yeah, if it hits the stumps and bounces away somewhere, well... So be it. That's a that's a deflection that can get you an extra. Anyway, but don't you think there's like? Uh, but don't you think there's like the other side of that is that if the balls hit the stumps, like if the ball gets hit to cover in regular play, like a normal delivery, anything mm. can play out, right? You know, they could drop the catch, they could take the catch, they could drop the catch and then run out the non-striker or whatever it is. The ball mm. hitting stump has always been end of delivery. There's no recourse yeah. beyond that. I, I kind of, I'm sympathetic to that alive. view. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to the view that the ball becomes dead upon hitting the stumps because that did look farcical. I'd never thought about it till last year, by the way. How ridiculous mm. will it be if someone's on 99, they get bowled off a free hit and they bring up their 100? Yeah, and I that's can't a wait. highlight. I actually, I actually can't wait for that to happen to emphasise the silly little game that we're all involved in. Peter Siddle is coming back to Victoria. I told you there would be Siddle news. <laughs> He's just signed a two-year deal. He's 38 
years old. He turns 39 in November. On, on his birthday. May, of course. And that means that if he plays through those two seasons, he'll be into his 40s playing Sheffield Shield cricket, something that we don't see a lot of these days. Not a lot of Teddy Sheringhams going around in the Sheffield Shield. <laughs> well, I mentioned Don Blackie earlier who made his test debut at 46 in the 28-29 Ashes series. So, of course, he was playing Shield cricket in his 40s. And there'll be many others between times. But when was the last time we had a Shield cricketer playing with a four in front of their age? I just can't think of any. Now, there might be some obvious examples somewhere. Sean Marsh came close. He retired this year at 39. But actually making it into the 40s is pretty special. If he sees out both years of the contract and Sids is a, an ageing fast bowler, there's every chance that – and he's had his injuries too that, that he won't quite get there. But pretty cool that he's still seen as valuable enough to, to give him this contract extension to return home. It says a fair bit about the way he conducted himself down at Tasmania and, and likewise over in England the last couple of years since leaving Victoria and retiring from international cricket. A few years ago now that um, that he's still able to lead attacks at that age. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely story and um, I'm, I'm so pleased that he continues to do what he loves most, which is bowling fast. A bowler that Victoria's not hanging on to who's... Not quite as advanced in years as Peter Siddle, John Holland, the left-arm spinner who played a handful of test matches for Australia as well as the, the second spinner, the Asian specialist. He's, unless he gets picked up somewhere else, um, done with Australian domestic cricket at the age of 35. One of those players who you think was, well, you could say he was lucky to get some opportunities, but he was unlucky as well to, to be up against some some other quality spinners in an era where you know he might have played a bit more if... They hadn't been around at, at exactly those times. Steve O'Keefe is the obvious one who springs to mind. Yeah, the downside piece of this is that he finishes with 298 first-class wickets. A guy who had to scrap because he wasn't always even the first-choice spinner of Victoria. I think about the Farwood Ahmed era when he was out of the side for much of it. But when Farwood was pushed to one side eventually and was just playing white ball cricket, Holland had his best season taking 50 wickets in 16-17. In that was their third straight Shield win. He took eight wickets in the Shield final of 15-16 as well. He was very influential there against South Australia. And he was unlucky to be at his peak there at the same time that Steve O'Keefe was the favoured left-arm tweaker. And you can make the case either way, right? Both were fantastic domestic bowlers. He was only in the test squad last year, Jeff. They called up John Holland to Sri Lanka when we were there back in July. So he wasn't far away from, from getting a test as the third spinner there. But um, with Todd Murphy's arrival as the... Great white hope of Australian spin bowling at the age of 22. You can see why they've made that decision to prioritise Murphy and, and release John Holland. But yeah, nine wickets in four test matches in 2016 and 2018. There are a lot of spinners, because they often only pick one spinner Australia, a lot of spinners who uh, had deserved to play test cricket at some stage and haven't. He got the chance to do that. And yes, it does free up some space on a young Victorian list. They've uh, added Ash Chandra Singer and Cam Kellaway for their first full-time deal so the the operation that Chris Rogers has got going there and he's he's um, spoken at length about is it's not about this year even though they did make the Shield final it's about sort of like two or three years into the future and and it makes sense that on that basis that, that Holland is, is moved on but who knows I wouldn't be surprised if we get to sort of September October and um, and there's a state out there in need of a second spinner and they call upon his services but if they don't uh, it's been a great career and it goes all the way back to 2008 so he was around a long time. 
Ireland and Bangladesh. We had our interview with Ireland captain Andrew Belburney last week. Really good response to that. So thanks to everyone who's got in touch about that interview with a very impressive character. Their first one day had been washed out by the time we did that interview. Their second match, well, it looked like it might be for a while, but eventually they managed 45 overs aside. So they did well out in Essex. Ireland went Big, mm. 319 for six in their 45 overs. Harry Tector absolutely laced it around the place. Ten sixes, seven fours, made 140. George Dockerell makes 74 off 47 at the end. So he's, you know, used to be a spinner and now he's good at the at batting. Who knew? Nobody else has ever done that. Just just <laughs> in a, an incredible turnaround. And, and then they only went and lost the game. Bangladesh get there with three balls to spare, trying to defend five off the last over. Mark Adair bowls a no ball on height, gets caught out in the deep. Um, Mushfiq Rahim is reprieved and, and wins it with a boundary on the next ball. But Harry Tector, that 140, one of our listeners, Andrew Beach, wrote in and said he described it as the most sensational 140. He said, if Root Coley Smith played that knock, every Everyone would lose their shit. He has four of the best ODI hundreds you will ever see, all in tight losses. The last over in this game, New Zealand last July by one wicket, then by one run, and off the last ball versus Zimbabwe in January. Come on, says Andrew, the lad is cursed. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, 140 from 112 balls was the other detail there. So a great strike rate. We've spoken a lot about Harry Tector. His old man Heatley was um, on television quite a lot as Harry was going through the gears. Heatley's a, um, a, also involved in the media. He's the streaming king of Ireland, all, all various different sports, including cricket. But yeah, hopefully he'll be able to turn those hun- those hundreds he's making into match winning efforts soon enough. It was Mark Adair who had five those five runs to play with in the final over, and it's a shame they couldn't get it done because you know you, you go into the third game and they win that narrowly as well. So they lose the series 2-0, but they could easily have won it 2-0. And even though they'd missed the chance to qualify automatically for the World Cup, it fits into that category, Jeff, of what you asked Balbo about last week in in series that you think they should have done better in, in a win-loss sense and being quite competitive. So even though Ireland now go into that, that qualification tournament, they do so in, in some form, noting here as well that um, in that big chase for Bangladesh, uh, uh, Shanto, the man who we watched play in Australia last year in the World Cup, made a couple of test tons last year. Najmul Hossein Shanto, um, that's his first one day 100, 117 from 93 balls for the 24-year-old left-handed opener who really goes for it, lots of like there. So they win by three wickets. And then in the third one day, uh, more heartbreakers, Ireland fall five runs short. Uh, Bangladesh were bowled out for 274 in the penultimate over. The captain, Tammy McBowl, made 69 nice runs. Mark Adair bounced back after the disappointment of the of the previous game, taking four for 40. McBride and Dockrell, the two spinners who, as you say before, have turned into quite useful batters as well. A couple of wickets each with their finger spin. But Ireland, with the bat... They had four contributions in the chase after 275 that looked like they were going to kick on. Sterling, 60. Dalburnie, 45. Tucker, 50. Tector, 45. If any of those go on and make 100, they win. Instead, Tucker was out in, in the 47th over and they were left with too much to do. Mark Adair bashed 20 from 10 balls. They needed 10 from the final over but only got five of them. Mustafiz Araman, four for 44 for Bangladesh, who have had a pretty good... World Cup Super League, Jeff. So zooming out the satellite view here. So Ireland finished in 11th spot well behind South Africa who got the last automatic qualification spot in 8th. But that yeah, that qualification tournament in Zimbabwe in July is going to be it's going to be fed income. Like two former World Cup winners in the West Indies and Sri Lanka 
will be there. The aforementioned Ireland in pretty good form. Zimbabwe, who are the home side. The Netherlands, plus the qualifiers who have come through League Two. Uh, that's going to be a hell of a tournament and we'll follow it closely. But yeah, the, the teams to automatically get there, New Zealand, England, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Australia, Afghanistan and South Africa at the end of the one and only World Cup Super League. Rest in peace. World Cup Super League, we barely knew thee. Uh, David White has exited his post at the top of Cricket New Zealand. Adam, the chief executive there, this is an interesting one. Might not be the biggest name in the game for people around the world, but he was there for a long time, for over a decade, and achieved a lot with New Zealand cricket in that time. I mean, not just the on-field stuff when you look at how far above their weight. They've continued to punch in just about every ICC event during that time, but uh, administratively as well. Yeah, I feel like this deserves a discussion, a brief one, albeit like, you know, he steps into that job in February 2012. That's only, I don't know, a year before the disaster in Cape Town when they when it feels like New Zealand cricket's going off something of a cliff. But now, press fast forward more than a decade, they won the World Test Championship. They were so unlucky not to win the men's 50-over World Cup and they made the, the 20-over final um, in UAE a couple of years ago as well. They've just signed a new TV deal, which is usually the life cycle of a CEO, right? You know, you sign your TV deal and you get out. Well, he's got it back on free-to-wear television, which is not for nothing in New Zealand as of this summer or maybe the summer after this one. And I'm not going to get into the politics of free-to-wear versus cable, but the point is is that that's a decision they've made and he's gone out and got the buyer for it. So well played on that front. Radio will follow in the fullness of time. There's currently a tender for the radio contract in the next round too. The women's cricket story is not perfect, but I mean, from 2012 to where they are, it's a shitload better. And the very fact that um, we're, we're hoping that the New Zealand side will be able to regenerate having had that golden generation underperform in major tournaments. There is some, there are some green shoots there with some younger bowlers, especially. And I, I know last year we spoke quite a bit when reviewing the book Cricketomics with Stefan Zeminski and Tim Wigmore about them leaning into the fact that they've got a small population, taking advantages of some of the benefits that you get in having a, a smaller pool of people to work with and just finding a way to make that work for them. So for example, the way they've been able to not compete with the IPL. And look, Brendan McCullum, who's a big part of this story, was interviewed during the week on SENZ uh, about the Joffre Archer contract stuff that we referred to off the top of the show. And he's like, well, you can't try and fight with this. You can't try and tell players they have to earn less money to be one of your players. Or as he put it, they can bugger off and play domestic cricket and not play international cricket. You've got to kind of play smarter in all of this. And I get where he's coming from because he was the New Zealand captain when they boxed smart, right? They realised that they couldn't compete with the IPL. They'd have to find a way to give their players a chance to do both. And for the most part, until last year, or until the start of this year with Trent Bolt and Colin de Grandholm, Bolt specifically though, they've kind of managed that balance in a reasonable way. The very fact that Trent Bolt has said during the week that he'll be available for the 50-over World Cup later this year, unexpectedly, but that's a good thing. That's where they've been Mm. clever and resourceful and a lot of that comes down to the leadership. So I think David White, his legacy is is a sound one. For me, it's that split between the men's program and their women's program. The men's program, they've done so much with limited resources and they've been able to keep finding and developing new players. And there have been a few imports, but, you know, New Zealand's a a migrant nation. Like that's, I don't think that's antithetical to developing a strong team. And and that's what hasn't happened in their women's setup. The reasons for why would have to come from people who are more 
invested in it day to day and, and know the workings and the goings on, but they haven't been able to develop women's players at the same rate. You know, they've they've had a culture of rewarding mediocrity there because there haven't been enough other options available. So I think you could find a pretty stark contrast between the two sides of managing cricket in that country um, in, in those terms. But I suppose you've, you've always got to look at the report card with a broad eye and, and try to work out the things that they have actually done well. Yeah, I think with the, the women's side of it, the fact that they've had to compete with the WBBL where the Super Smash fits in and, and the, their players have often been playing in Australia as a means of earning more money. It, it, it's not been perfect or easy, but I, I see some green shoots though. I mean, I've, I've watched NC Patel play a bit now and you can kind of see younger players who are getting a chance in that New Zealand A side who who should be able to come up and, and replace the senior players as they retire in, in the next couple of years. So, it, it, But it's never going to be easy for them with their relatively small talent pool. So it makes it all the more impressive that they've been able to compete the way they have whilst he's been in the chair. And I reckon it is seen differently now. Like New Zealand is seen as a a serious major cricketing nation now. Whereas, remember, they went how long before winning their first test match, you know? And how long did they... Mm. We were talking just last week on Storytime about even in the early 70s, Australia would would barely even send proper teams out there, right? Unofficial test matches and that kind of thing. Whereas now you you think of New Zealand as as a proper... Well, the very fact that they were world test champions, right? And you've got to get a lot right off the field for that to to manifest itself on the field too. Briefly on the IPL, I haven't had time to watch much of it over the last week. We've been very busy with podcast stuff, but just to note that it's getting towards the finals at this point. Delhi and Hyderabad officially out of the running. Gujarat officially through. They've been top of the table basically all season. So you've got Chennai, Mumbai, Lucknow and Bangalore all in the top five, but Rajasthan, Kolkata and Punjab are all level on points with fifth spot. So you've got seven teams who are in the running who who might be able to make it into that top five and it could go in any direction for all of them from this point on. After a few single-digit scores, Maxi's responded with 68 against Mumbai and 54 against the Royals in his last two games. So by all reports, he's having his best IPL season for a long time. So pleased to see that's the case after the you know the broken leg late last year and so on and questions as to how he might respond after treatment. Uh, he's been in top nick and Australia are going to need him this year in, in white ball cricket with a World Cup around the corner in October. And he's got a baby on the way as well. That yes. That was the announcement this week. So um, happy days for him. Congratulations to him and Vinny. Yeah, that, that, that's great news. They put out, as is the custom these days, the Instagram post with, I think it was the, the baby's clothes, wasn't it, um, that they've already mm-hmm. started buying. So, yeah, in, incredibly exciting for Glenn, who's going to be a great dad. County Championship Cricket, Adam. You have been keeping a close eye on all of this, as always. Walk yeah. Walk through it. Yeah, uh, well, it was a it was a full round this weekend, Jeff. There was no one resting. Every every team played. So in Divi One, I, I spent, as I mentioned earlier, a little bit of time at, at the Oval watching Surrey defeat Middlesex by nine wickets to stay top of the table. Another fifer for Daniel Worrell. Whisper it, but he's eligible for England next year. More than a guy who can draw a dick on a cricket pitch. If you want to know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, Google it. Yeah, they bowled out Middlesex. It's, it's 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 the life of an artist, right? <laughs> when when you are an artist, you can become defined by your early works, <laughs> and and maybe that's frustrating for you. You know, maybe you maybe you want to do more as. Um, 
Angie Hart from Frente once said to me, I tell my students, be very careful about the songs you write when you're 22 because you might end up singing them for a very long time. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the risk of being creative and being expressive. Um, but but there, is more, there is more to offer that Daniel Worrell can. I mean, imagine if somebody called Frankie could bowl to Frank Dimuth Karunaratna. You know, imagine that Frank versus Frank, it's a, a contest for our times. I'm still recovering from that massive fucking name drop at minute 73 of the podcast. I spoke to Angie Hart from Frente. Have that. <laughs> Have fucking that. Um, so Middlesex all at 209, then Surrey got 380. Jamie Smith, unfortunately, fell three runs short of a ton. He's a good player. Jamie Smith, uh, uh, he's going to play test cricket at some point. This is the queue so long. That's a great thing for English cricket that he's not in the frame right now, but he will be soon. Rory Burns, 88, Middlesex. Made 240 the second time around. Uh, Sean Abbott took three for, who has been added to the Ashes training squad with Michael Nisa during the week. Mm. And they were playing, I think they were playing two strips over from what will be the surface for the World Test Championship. And it was a quick pitch, so read into that what you will. But I doubt we'll see two spinners used for, well, I suppose you might with India anyway because of team balance. But um, it hopefully uh, will be a test match, a World Test Championship final that's Defined by fast bowling, that would be fun. And Surrey got the 73 they needed, one down. North Hats hammered again by an innings and 25 runs by knots inside three days. They went from 112 for two to all out 158 in the first dig and all out for 72 in the second dig. So they're cooked. They'll probably get relegated. Kent got out of jail against Hampshire thanks to the rain at Canterbury. They were bowled out for 95 the home side on day one. James Fuller, you know, Abbott, Abbas. Cole Barker, and then it's just like James Fuller. I've said the other week, like pretty much anywhere else he'd be opening the bowling, but both second change down there. Um, mm. So five or 21 I hope, for him. I hope that his um, nickname is Beans. That'd be good. <laughs> that, well, it'd be, it'd be impressive if they went that way. Mm. Um, Abbott took three. Hampshire went big. Dawson made 84, and then Kent were able to bat it out for a draw. Compton, 54 from 144. Crawley. 56 from 133, and Jack Leaning topped them both. 68 not out from 206, and Jordan Cox, who was on an England trip in white ball cricket late last year, 30 not out from 130. So fun in its own way, watching a side scrap for a draw, and they benefited from from rain as well in in the middle of that match. Warwickshire stays second after defeating Essex uh, at Edgbaston. Uh, Essex all out, 126 on day one. Rushworth again took... Ton of wickets last week, four more here on day one. Oliver Hannon Dolby, who I suspect is a listener to the final word, also picked up four. Warwickshire. Hassan Ali, top scored at number nine, made 53 not out from 37 rocks. On your Hassan. That's always, classic. Always loved classic him. Hassan Ali. Always loved Hassan. Remember Ali. the hundred? Yeah. He made that first class turn in the in the domestic Pakistan final, I think it was, where he just absolutely clouted everything that came his way. Yeah. Um, love the way he goes about his work. Yeah, and Simon Harmer made an unbeaten fifty for Essex when they were all out for two fifteen, four more for Rushworth, so eight for the match, making it count at his new club in that big victory. So he's got 633 wickets at 22, Rushworth, remembering that he spent like five years in his 20s, like I think he sold satellite dishes or something like that. So he's made his 30s count as a professional cricketer. And the game that caused the most, uh, that, that prompted the most reaction in Divi 1 was a sort of a silly draw at Old Trafford and silly because of the response. So most of the attention was on James Anderson's groin, as we touched on earlier. Took two early wickets and bowled the house down on morning one. There at Old Trafford, two for 16 from 14 on the first day, the most Jimmy Anderson figures you could ever imagine. Then the rain kicks in, his groin goes, Somerset end up getting the 361 anyway. 105 for James Rue, 
19 years old, left-handed wicketkeeper, ends up completing twin tons in the match. He's fourth century and like six matches, so one to watch there for England in the future, given he's already churning him out as a 19-year-old. Uh, classic Matt Henry. We talked about Hassan Ali going nuts in the previous game. Well, 50 not out from 39 is very Matt Henry areas for yeah. one Kiwi. In, in many in ways, match. he's the, the Hassan Ali of New Zealand. We've often said that, <laughs> Matt Henry. <laughs> and two other Kiwis uh, for Lancashire, Daryl Mitchell and Will Williams taking three wickets each. Lanks 326 the second time. The Dazzler on debut for Lanks makes 105. But yeah, due to the rain, here's the bit that got a bit silly, right? There was a suggestion that the game should be set up, that they should set in the second inning, Somerset this is, should leave Lancashire about 250 from like 50, 60 overs, something like that. Why on earth would you do that in the modern game? I mean, I get, you know, generous declarations. We saw one from Knotts at Lords against Middlesex the other week, but you've got to earn it. You've got to earn a generous declaration. If you're behind in the game, you don't just get given... You don't get thrown the keys uh, at that point. And I don't think that it's reasonable to say that Lanks were in a position where they'd earned that that opportunity, um, having had a first innings deficit and the game was drifting away. So it all finished in a draw, as you would anticipate. So Surrey, 82, Warwickshire, 79. So a big gap there between those two teams and Hampshire on 57. One more round in Divi 1 before they take their break for the blast. Knots have got Essex, Middlesex, Somerset, Surrey, Kent. I'm doing that game with Norcross and Phil Walker this week at the Oval. Hampshire, okay. North Hats. Then in DB2, Jeff, there was a f- phenomenal win from Durham. I touched on it before. One wicket, victors over Yorkshire. This was a classic county cricket scrap where all the scores were roughly the same. 254 for Yorkshire. Potts and Rain, seven wickets between them every bloody week. Durham, 227. So a first innings deficit. George Hill takes four for the all-rounder. Yorkshire, 218. So they missed their chance to push the advantage home. Hill, that same man top scoring with 51 after his forfeit. Guess what? Pots and rain, four each. So they've taken 15 of the 20 wickets between them, the Durham openers. So what you're saying is there's been consistent rain through the county season. Yes, and more of it coming here. So they were left 246. And when they came back on the final morning, they needed 33 runs to get, two wickets in hand and rain once more. The rain came, 50 not out. He put on 71 with Pots for the ninth wicket, who made 25 and they needed two to get. We're in Bryden Cast, we mentioned his back injury. He had to walk in at 11 rather than number eight, where he's made a couple of centuries this year with his trunk injury. And he, um, and, he and he gets those two runs, the number 11. And Durham win by one wicket at a classic at Chesterler Street in Yorkshire. How's this? Yorkshire have now gone on a 17-game streak without winning in four-day cricket, mm. going back to their season opener last year. So they're in a world of pain in second-last position in Division 2, Derbyshire, Gloucestershire. Well, the other consideration is that if he has a trunk injury, maybe he's a tree, you know, maybe he's an <laughs> ent, maybe he's walked out of the forest and decided to leave his eternal brethren and come and play county championship cricket. Lends itself to a, a photo shoot at some point, doesn't it? Bride and cast yeah. with the trunk. We'll see. How good are their media manager? We'll find out. Derbyshire, Gloucestershire, another draw in the rain. Gloucestershire just can't get on. They've barely played this season. On day one... The rain started and it barely stopped. Derbyshire declared at 251 for nine. Gloucestershire made 383. Harris is struggling of late, seven from 42. Uh, and then the game got put out of its misery when Derbyshire were 166 for five in the second inning. So Gloucestershire, four draws and no result in their five games. So they've got just no chance of advancing to Division One again because they, they can't get games to the point where they might be able to push away for a win. That's what Glamorgan did against Worcestershire inside three days. So Worcestershire, all out 109. Nisa, 
mentioned he's also been called up to the squad after his hat-trick last week. Four for 40 uh, mm. with the ball. To, to clarify, they're in the training squad. They're not yes. in formally in the WTC Ashes squad. It's funny, isn't it? I think they'll just get absorbed within that squad, don't you? Like, why would they send Michael Nisa back to play in the blast? This makes no sense. Mm. Like, why not just, like, yeah, it's an extra hotel room, right? An extra tracksuit, right? <laughs> they, they can probably, you know, you'll <laughs> get the buffet breakfast, like, you know. They've got the cash. We know that. <laughs> Glamorgan responded with 258, but they were six for 120. When Nisa walks in, Marnus already out for 42. And Nisa, after his forfa, wax 86, gets him into a commanding position. Worcestershire all at 227 the second time around. Van der Gutten in the wickets. 82 to knock off for full points and did so. Won by 10 wickets. So Glamorgan, a fourth. They're only five points away from the promotion spots. And the final game of the round was the game that most people were watching because Steve Smith and Bajara were playing. Sussex playing against Leicestershire at Grace Road, but Smith misses out again. He's like the only one that missed mm-hmm. out. They made 4.30. Smith made three. He was out league before wicket to Mulder, who took a fifer. Leon Mulder, the South African. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen the clip, Jeff. You could argue it was a sniff to high. Cam Ponsonby, who's been doing some work for us, uh, observed amusingly that, yeah, sure, you know, he might be getting some practice in England, but you can't compete with the English umpires if they've got him in, in the crosshairs. Well, and, and he has been LBW a few times. You, you remember the, the years of peak Smith, nobody could hit his pad, let alone get a decision drawn from hitting his mm. pad. So that hasn't been the case with the ball coming into him, which I'm sure the English bowlers are looking at. So he, he doesn't have a meaningful score as yet in nope. the couple of hits that he's had. So it's quite interesting. All, all, all of that all of that chuntering about how, oh, they shouldn't be giving him a spot, blah, 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 as though the counties aren't. You know, teams in their own right who are trying to do well and thus want to recruit good players. Oh, it should be a, an overall national effort to, <laughs> to, you know, because because obviously Steve Smith can't bat in England, you know, as we saw in 2019 where he didn't play a test match for 16 months and mm. then came in and peeled mm. off twin tons. Um, nonetheless, yeah, all, all of that jumping up and down about that he shouldn't be allowed to play county cricket um, doesn't seem to have <laughs> such potency at the moment. Brexit means Brexit. Take back control. All the same Venn mm. diagram there. Uh, so Sussex got... Yeah, the EU do- <laughs> is deciding how many holes we're allowed to put in crumpets. <laughs> we, we should be allowed to have as many holes in crumpets as we want. Uh, Pajara didn't make a ton, Jeff. This will surprise you. So oh. after eight centuries without a half century, he was out for 77. But they still made 430. Um, Leicestershire... 270, Hanscom only made 26. Uh, they got asked to follow on in the, after the rain, but they got to Safe Harbour, 295 for six, unfortunately. Um, Hanscom missed out, got a fourth baller, knocked over. Smith bowled an over, none for seven from one, if you're interested. And Rishi Patel made a ton. And yeah, he used to, used to do more of that. He yes. actually used to bowl quite a bit, <laughs> more, more than he batted, in a way. And speaking of guys that do both, Mulder, after getting Smith and getting a fifer, made 102 not out on the final day for Leicestershire. So in Division Two, Durham way ahead on 82 points. Sussex... 64, Leicestershire 60, Glamorgan 59. In the games to come this weekend in their final run of the stretch, the only one that people are going to be watching is Smith and Pajara against Labuschagne at Hove. So that's Sussex and and, uh, Sussex uh, taking on and hosting uh, Glamorgan. So uh, I'm hoping to get down there. We'll see. There'll be a lot of interest in that before they Mm -hmm. all run off and play in the 20-over stuff for a couple of months. Yes, the perfect preparation for the international test season is to have everybody back in the blast <laughs> doing what they do best. Uh, Rachel, hey, ho, Flint, Jeff, quick run through a, a rain affected around there that was played last Wednesday, a washout. 
between the Thunder and the Sunrise at Sale, which was disappointing. The second time the Thunder have been washed out so far in the season. Also a no result with the, the Blaze and the Storm at Leicester. After the Blaze made 209 for nine, um, the Storm were 23 for none in reply. Nadine de Klerk after a seven for last week made 43, but yeah, unfortunately those two games were washed out. The Sparks knocked off the Vipers, who were in a bit of a hole. You know, the Vipers who were broadly unbeatable for the first three years of this mm. competition. They've lost now to the... The Sunrisers in their first game and the Sparks last Wednesday, they were all out for 180. Ella McCacken made 59 opening, but not much else. Aaron Burns, who's playing as the overseas for the Sparks, took five for 36 and the Sparks got it four down and it was keeping up with the Joneses. Eve Jones, the captain, 73, and Amy Jones, the England international, 40. And it moves the Sparks into the second spot on the ladder and the Vipers, as I mentioned before, down in fourth. The double Jones effect um, that that is famous that we that we know about and speak about. It, it, every time you say the Vipers, I always think about Daniel Norcross. A, a number of our listeners have noted this. Every time he says Vipers, the Vipers really <laughs> leans into the vowel. Um, but yeah, they were they were pretty much the the Galacticos of, of this competition yeah. for the first few years. You you couldn't get past them. So. Nice to see them coming back to the pack a bit. The Diamonds beat them in the Lords final last year and they defeated the Stars at Scarborough, a duckworth Lewisy kind of game. It was unfortunate the rain kind of followed them around this this week. Um, the Stars made 223, bowled out in the 45th over, but Dunkley, uh, the England number three, made 101 not out from 101 balls, really held it together. For the South East Stars, the next best score was 26. For the Diamonds, 5 for 37 from Jessica Woolston. I saw a bowl last year at all. Teenager out of the academy who joined the Diamonds late in the season and was there at Lords in that final. They were set in the end after the adjustment, 178 in 36 overs and got there with two balls to spare. Steer Callis, mate of mine, Dutch international, made 66 not out after Lauren Winfield Hill put on a, an impressive opening partnership with her, making 45. And it had four off the last over, bowled by Bryony Smith and Lizzie Scott hit the winning run. So the Blaze, top of the pops on 19, the Stars 15, then the Diamonds, the Vipers, the Sparks, the Storm, the Sunrisers and the Thunder who are yet to win a game. Now, no matches until July. They've played five games and they stop, mm. they stop the 50-over stuff and they move into the Charlotte Edwards Cup and then the 100 follows another bunch of games. And, you know, it's, it's all blocked in as it tends to be in England. Yeah, it's no wonder people find it marginally confusing when <laughs> it's not just that there are several different competitions, it's that they're all being played in little bits. You know, it's like, all right, here's a quarter of your main course and then you'll have a third of your dessert and after that we're going to go back and have half the entree and then we'll come back to another quarter of the main course and then you'll have a glass of wine. It's like, wait, I, I, I don't understand. <laughs> like, I've just, I've just got used to this thing happening. We're not yeah. very good at handling change. Yeah, you know, I don't want custard with my lasagna necessarily yeah. although you know with the way i eat i probably wouldn't know the difference but because it happens that's very true quickly. You, you could you could sneak it in um, in place of bechamel <laughs> like, like i think visually you might not notice and if you are hungry enough yeah i've i've seen you you plow through a plate of lasagna in about 28 seconds so i'm not sure that you would notice actually i think that's enough from us for today but not for this week because coming up a day after this episode is that conversation with osman samiuddin about the allocations for the icc funding and the way that's going to be revamped or very very likely to be revamped once the icc meets later this year uh, very much in favor of the bcci so we'll be talking through the details of that how 
how that's all going to work, where it's come from and what's likely to happen next. So keep an eye out for that in your feed and keep an ear on it when it comes up. And story time will rock along on hopefully Friday afternoon. I won't be doing this one. That'll be a Jeff and Barat special because I'm, as I mentioned before, at the Oval doing the Surrey game and there won't quite be enough hours in the day to do all these things at the same time. So Barat has been on the bench for a few weeks. I'm sure he's ready to roll again, Jeff. He's absolutely raring to go. He's already sending me messages about numbers and <laughs> solutions and, and trying to work out the, the most meandering, long-winded story that he can find to answer any of the questions. As is his charm. A reminder that if you've been listening all the way through, you heard us talk about the Lord's Taverners, it'd be great to uh, raise a few more bob for them. Uh, the link is in the show notes, very easy to access, or on our social media platforms we've been We've been spamming those, um, well, we would have been between when we hit record here and hit stop here and when you hear this episode, so you'll be able to find the link and hopefully contribute to what we're doing there at the Edinburgh Half Marathon just 12 days from now. That is daunting. This has been The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thanks so much for your company. Plenty more coming up on the show. So uh, stick with us as we move up towards the uh, international summer in the Northern Hemisphere as it gets underway. There aren't any quiet weeks on The Final Word. Can't stop, won't stop. See you soon. Bye. I had to go away.